This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Florida State, you're the favorite out of the ACC. Everything's awesome. North Carolina just struggling to do anything on the offensive end of the floor. Give Florida State's defense a lot of credit. There's just no way you can simulate urgency. Carolina took a 5-0 lead off of Florida State turnovers. They scored the first six points of the second half, and we've got ourselves a ball game. FSU, this might sound like a hot take. They're not as talented as Carolina is. And another takeaway on the run to the bucket. Layup missed, Baycock hustling and fighting for two more. I think the Tar Heels are going to beat Florida State tomorrow, and there's going to be an atmosphere at the game, too. I think that's a significant deal as well. Because that was a stupid question. <laughs> How, I am not shocked nor surprised that Roy had to get up and leave the press conference at that point. <laughs> you had to throw in the Corey Alexander clip there, calling me stupid on national TV. That's right, though. I said North Carolina was going to beat Florida State. That's exactly what happened. Going into the weekend, I also said the Tar Heels' magic number to punch their tickets to the dance was three. It required a big second-half comeback, but the Heels got it done against the Knolls. And given Florida State being the ACC's best team and who they have tonight, I really do think it might actually just be tonight. That's enough for North Carolina to clinch a spot in the field. If they won tonight, and let's say the wheels came off against Duke and in Greensboro, losing two in a row, I can't see the committee leaving Carolina out. Selection Sunday, it would be uncomfortable. Three wins, when I gave that out last week, I felt that would make North Carolina a comfortable team to get into the field. But I think the Florida State win and beating Syracuse would be enough to clinch a spot in the field of 68. It would be North Carolina's, according to the net at least, North Carolina's two best wins consecutively at the end of the year. Timing matters. The committee, they don't worry as much about who you lost to as much as who you beat. And this is a quad one game. You're playing at the Dome. A win tonight should be enough for Carolina to get into the tournament, given that they beat Florida State, the best team they've beaten all year. And if they win tonight and win convincingly, goodness, I think you're talking about an NCAA tournament team. If Carolina won tonight, lost the next two, they'd be 16-10. and Is that team really going to get left out? Brand recognition, it matters. Some say they don't want it to matter, but that's just the world that we live in, man. Why I think if Duke is close to the cut line, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. We saw it time and time again with the selection committee for the college football playoff. You'd have the committee chair trotted out there looking at teams losing games, sometimes multiple games, and still putting them above unbeaten Coastal Carolina, putting teams above unbeaten Cincinnati. The same logic didn't apply to those teams as it did the brand names. Florida comes to mind. They lose to LSU after a kid throws a shoe to put the Gators in field goal position. And the committee essentially said, yeah, 
Florida has higher ranked recruits and they have better players. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. North Carolina, they have more talent than most teams across college basketball. They have more talent than the Florida State Seminoles. They're not as mature. They're not as experienced as Florida State is. So Florida State is a better team. But talent speaking, there aren't many teams that could say they are more talented than the Tar Heels. That matters. Roy Williams, his track record in the tournament, that matters. That brand, it's a TV show when it's all said and done. That's going to be worth something. So if you're a Tar Heel fan and you want to feel comfortable on Selection Sunday, that magic number still applies. And at this point, it's two. Win the night, beat Duke, or win one game in the ACC tournament. But I think, comfort or not, if North Carolina beats Syracuse tonight, they are a shoe-in to the NCAA. That's the way I feel about it. North Carolina, 16-10, and 10, that's a team that gets into the field. I also think the Tar Heels win tonight. Roy Williams, he has lit up the Syracuse zone. Since Syracuse joined the ACC, Roy is 10-2 and two against the Orange. They had that loss last year in the tournament, which ended that dreadful season. But weeks before that, in the Dome, Cole Anthony looked tremendous, and North Carolina had a field day. I forget, Robert, what does field day mean again? Where does that come from? I think it comes from military terms or something. See if we we always had field days in like elementary school. Oh yeah, I used to love field days. When was when did you stop having field days? Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I used to have field days. I don't think you had those in middle school. Yeah, once you got to middle school, it kind of went away with recess. But I'm glad to know you had field days too here in the triad. I didn't grow up around here. I grew up outside of Raleigh, but Field days were always something I look forward to. Roy Williams, 10-2 and two against the Orange since Syracuse joined the league, including a stretch in which they won nine in a row. Last year's bad team, they even found a way. Here's my only concern with the game. It's why I don't think North Carolina is going to win impressively. It is a quick turnaround for the Heels. The obvious thing you think about when you approach a Syracuse 2-3 zone, you got to hit jumpers. That's the obvious thing. But it's not just that. There's a reason why teams, they'll go into the 2-3 zone when they have difficulty rebounding. North Carolina, you have to you have to rebound against the Syracuse zone. you got to get middle. You have to hit your jumpers. And I think this is a good enough North Carolina shooting team that's not going to be so much a problem. But the concern I have, it's a two-day turnaround. The Tar Heels haven't dealt with this in ACC play. The other time they were supposed to was the Miami game after beating Duke. But because the video surfaced of Armando Baycott, Dayron Sharp, among others, caught on video celebrating the Duke win, Armando. Miami didn't feel comfortable playing the game. So North Carolina didn't have to have that turnaround. Roy even said it after the game Saturday. This is a game he's been circling, he's been kind of worried about. The Tar Heels did play three games in three straight days in Asheville for the Maui Invitational, but that was three months ago. We'll see how this team bounces back after playing a physical, dramatic, emotional game against Florida State, now going on the road in a quick turnaround. We've said it. The quick turnarounds hurt the road team more than it helps the home team. That was the case for Virginia going to Florida State. That was the case for Syracuse going to Duke. That was the case for... Uh, Duke going to Miami, 
We'll see how North Carolina responds, but I like the Heels to win, and I think a win tonight should be enough to get into the NCAA tournament for the Tar Heels. All right, Robert, what did you find on field day? Uh, yeah, with military, anything taking place in the field. But after the 1800s, the military didn't really use it more. And it could be still anything in the field, from a hunt to a dance. We've got Carolina Panthers news. Thank you for that information, by the way. And Panthers quarterback news. The 49ers have reportedly contacted Carolina with an interest in Teddy Bridgewater. When I first read the headline, I thought, are they really that down on Jimmy G? Turns out I was giving too much credit to Teddy. They're not interested in having Teddy be the starter. John Lynch was apparently only interested in Teddy as Jimmy G's backup, which is the latest reason why I think the Carolina Panthers might prefer starting a rookie quarterback this year over starting Teddy. I put out a poll on social media you can vote on at Josh Graham Radio. Who will start week one for the Panthers? Teddy, Deshaun Watson, a rookie QB, or other and eh, I think we got close to 100 votes on this right now, still very early on in the voting, but um, 38% say Teddy. So most Panther fans still feel like Teddy's going to be the guy Carolina falls back on. It's the most likely option for Carolina to have week one when they face whoever. Schedule's going to come out in a couple of months. That was my thinking, too, even just a couple of weeks ago. But it shifted with the amount of aggression Carolina shown pursuing Deshaun. And when we learned about what the offer was for Matt Stafford, not just the number eight pick, but also Teddy, and maybe an additional mid-round draft choice, that's how down Carolina is on Teddy. We've heard the comments. You don't even have to read too much into it. What Coach Rule said at the Senior Bowl about quarterbacks needing to rally from behind Scott Fitterer's first press conference saying his idea of a franchise quarterback is someone who can win the game at the end considering what Teddy's bugaboo last year was after letting go of Marty Herney David Tepper said on a conference call that unless you have your franchise guy you're always going to be reevaluating things at quarterback as if to say he does not have that in Teddy the league views Teddy as a backup quarterback San Francisco made that clear. Carolina statements have made that clear. The rumors have made that clear. So there's a chance inside that building. Joe Brady and Coach Rule, they might be viewing it as the difference between renting and buying. They might view it as, we are wasting time running it back with Teddy starting week one. We need to draft somebody or bringing Deshaun, bring in our future quarterback, and have that guy start week one. Because we're wasting time, we're wasting money here with Teddy being the guy. Apparently you can get a mid-round draft pick for him. A third or a fourth round pick. I don't know about you, but a third or a fourth round pick could be really handy, Robert, if you're trying to trade up and draft somebody in the top five. What does Bill Polian say? The trade value chart in order to get to number two or number three in the draft from the Panthers' number eight spot? To get from eight to three is the equivalent value of the first, second, and third round picks for the Panthers. So if you're getting a third round pick for Teddy, that can really help you if you're trying to trade up and take a Zach Wilson or a Justin Fields. More on that in a bit. It also saves Carolina a lot of salary cap space. 
This is the way that Joe Person put it earlier today in his story for The Athletic. The Panthers can save nearly $13 million against the cap by trading Teddy. Or $18 million if that deal happens after June the 1st. Say if the Houston, Deshaun situation boils over into the summer and they still haven't found a resolution in that and Carolina remains aggressive and finds a way to land him. And you have to figure out what's up to do with Teddy at that point. If Carolina does get rid of Teddy, there's $10 million in dead money they have to deal with. $10 million. But they can spread that out over two years. That is if Carolina were to trade Teddy. If they cut Teddy, the Panthers would be left with $20 million in dead cap and only about $3 million in cap savings. So if Carolina is to get rid of Teddy, it's going to be via a trade. It doesn't make much sense to release him if you can get value, and it helps you bring in your future quarterback, whether that be Deshaun Watson or one of these rookies, I think that makes some sense. The top four quarterbacks in this draft, it's important to remember, they're a lot more mobile than Teddy is. Trevor, you can't get him, but Zach Wilson, I think you can. He's very mobile. He's my second favorite quarterback in this draft. I've been on the Zach Wilson train since October. Justin Fields, he's mobile too. He's more sturdy than the other quarterbacks. He can take more blows. He's a tough guy. We saw the way he played against Clemson in the semifinal. Trey Lance is the most interesting quarterback prospect. Ran pro style, a pro-style offense at North Dakota State. Same North Dakota State Bison program that produced Carson Wentz. And that turned out to be a good pick for a few years. I still believe in Carson. I think he can get things fired up being reunited with Frank Wright in Indianapolis. Lance is the most mobile quarterback of the four. He's also the most raw. But I remember last year, we were saying, okay, Jeremy Chin, we see all the talent with him. Of course, a totally different position. There's no way you could expect that guy to contribute for you, given the fact he doesn't get an offseason. He doesn't get a conventional training camp. He doesn't get preseason games. He started game one from FCS Southern Illinois. Southern Illinois beating Trey Lance's North Dakota State over the weekend without Lance in there because he opted out of the spring. He's preparing for the draft, as he rightfully should. But Jeremy Chen was able to start game one. Why not Lance? If you have a great coaching staff, which Carolina believes it does, with Joe Brady, who's getting these head coaching interviews, and with Matt Rule and a much more conventional offseason, I could see Carolina drafting one of these guys, Wilson Fields Lance, and they being the starters week one for Carolina over Teddy. I think Carolina's out on Teddy. I don't think he's going to be the starter week one. Is it going to be Deshaun or is it going to be a rookie? I think that's what we're talking about now. I think Teddy is now becoming one of the least likely fallbacks for Carolina this year. Josh Graham loves to talk sports. He also loves to daydream about sports, mostly about being the locker room towel boy. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham. We'll get to the big NFL breaking news of the day in a few minutes. But North Carolina is going to be in action tonight against Syracuse. First time since late November, early December, the Tar Heels have had a two-day turnaround or shorter 
They had that tournament in Nashville in which they played three consecutive days. North Carolina's had a lot of success against Syracuse over the years. 7 o'clock tip in the Dome on ESPN. And here to talk about it with us is former Tar Heel Brandon Robinson. And I think you're the perfect person to talk to about the Syracuse zone because you're a shooter. And we always hear against the zone, eh, you have to approach it and hit open shots when they're available to you. North Carolina, since Ace, uh, Syracuse joined the ACC, is 10-2 and two against Syracuse. What has Roy figured out about the zone? What do you remember about the things he told you guys when you prepared for it? I mean, when we play Syracuse, Coach is also big about not just settling for jumpers, but when we do get those jumpers, just making the most of those opportunities and knock in those shots. But things people like that don't really know basketball as well. It's like in a zone, it's hard to rebound. It's something that Coach preaches is offensive rebounds. So that's been something that's helped us a lot in the years past against Syracuse, getting those offensive rebounds on missed shots and also getting the ball in the middle to our bigs and then being able to make plays in the zone. What are these two-day turnarounds like when you have to go on the road and it's just not – it affects your routine a little bit. It's not like the normal three- or four-day stretch you have to prepare for a game. No, it's definitely hard because, you know, you just get off a plane. Like, for example, they just played a hard fall game against Florida State. So you got to come in and recover. Usually on a game like that, we play Florida State, you have an off day afterwards when you play a hard game like that, but you don't have an off day. You still have to prepare. So you have to be very, um, like, self-disciplined to get your treatment in But after the game, going into practice, and then after practice, going into the game on that Monday. So it's definitely tough if you don't do the right things. But, you know, Jonas and Doug have been big about guys getting their recovery in when I've been there in the past. So I think they'll be ready tonight. It's former Tar Heel Brandon Robinson with the series on Twitter at BRob underscore four. Catch it tonight with our friends B-Dot and Kiara Luck on the, in the Heels house at 6.30 on Clubhouse, 7 o'clock tip between North Carolina and Syracuse. I'm glad you bring up the fact that the previous game was against Florida State because – it seems like that's going to be a really physical game that you really want more time to recover from. I I remember when North Carolina went up against Virginia. Virginia won the game, but I felt like there was some carryover effect because they had that two-day layoff and then played Florida State, and they got boat raced. They got rolled out of the building. Do you Is that your primary concern with the turnaround tonight, just how physical Florida State can be? and North Carolina being physically ready to go against Syracuse? I think one thing is to look at, just look at is how they start the game. Just because, you know, in that Florida State game, they came from being behind, I think, like 15 or something like yeah. that. I'm not sure. Yeah. And and it's tough to, to come back from behind and still end up winning the game. So, you know, I'm just looking for them to come out with great energy and see how they maintain it. I think tonight's going to be an important game for guys that come off the bench and uh, help those guys that play those major minutes um, in that Florida State game and giving those guys a rest and um, not not hurting us but helping us when they come in the game. Roy Williams won his 900th game on Saturday. It's the fewest amount of seasons. It's the fewest amount of games for any coach to get to that number in men's D1 basketball history. You were in the locker room when he passed Dean Smith and when he tied Dean Smith last year. Did he ever speak to you guys about what that meant to him or no? 
No, he didn't. You know, for Coach, those accomplishments are great to him, but he really means, like, after the press conference when he said, I wasn't worried about getting 900. I was focused on this team getting our 15th win or 16th win, whatever it is, and he really means that. Coach is not a type of person who looks at his own accolades. He's always about the team and how we can get better and and just how we can improve on a day-to-day basis. I remember last year when we won that game against Yale when he um, – when he, I think he, it was either he tied or passed. Yeah, he tied um, him. Coach it was Smith. on New Year's Eve. Tied he tied him, him right. yeah. He was, he didn't even take a moment to, to think about that accomplishment because he was so worried about Ant when he got hurt. Mm. So that's Coach who he is. Like, he, he really doesn't pay attention to the numbers. He cares about his players. Anthony Harris getting injured that game against Yale. And then I think the win that passed, uh, Dean, was against Miami later the next month. Brandon Robinson's with us here former Tar Heel. Any chance you'll be in the building Saturday against Duke? I don't know. I might. I might. I might. I don't know yet. I would <laughs> love to see that game. Um, but, you know, I'll just be just happy with a win. I think we owe them from last year what happened at the Smith Center. So I'll just be excited for them to win the game, no matter how they get it, either if I'm at home or somewhere watching it. How much of a difference do you think 3,000 people in the building Saturday made? It seems like there's a big difference between three thousand and just maybe maybe a hundred. You know, it's crazy because um, they were talking about how big the fans had a difference on that game, and that and they really meant that because you know a lot of times when you go down, the crowd gets into it. That gives you kind of that extra motivation, the extra boost to just get up and play, and you know just running out and and seeing all the fans there well from when i played just being twenty thousand in there it just made you want to play good because you didn't want to disappoint the fans and just you know you just want them to go home with a good experience you know a lot of times for people their first then when they come to a tar heel game that might be their first time coming to a game they might be coming from california or somewhere so you don't want them to come all the way from the west coast to see you play and you disappoint you know you just always want to represent the jersey and make the fans happy b rob you keep B dot straight later on tonight. It's a big task. You figure it out uh, later on, and we'll be listening. I appreciate you spending the time with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. You got it. He's on Twitter at brob underscore four. It's Brandon Robinson, former Tar Heel sharpshooter, joining us here. That is an interesting thing he brings up. Everybody just talks about, and I was bringing it up earlier, how you got to hit jumpers. You got to hit shots facing the Syracuse 2-3 zone. But the biggest thing he goes to, and it's so Roy Williams, I guarantee you that's something he ingrains and his team has been doing so today at shoot-around, offensive rebounding. It's difficult to rebound when you face the 2-3 zone. That's why teams run the 2-3 zone when they have injuries in the post and have difficulty matching up with size. That's what teams do. So offensive rebounds, that's another figure to look at. It's not just about three-point shooting and the jumpers North Carolina hits. Shifting things a bit. J.J. Watts, now an Arizona Cardinal. This was really strange, Robert. You had the Peloton story from this morning that turned out not to be a thing. Did you follow that at all? Yeah, a little bit. And the only thing with that is, somebody as big as J.J. ain't getting on a bike. Stationary or one that's moving. Why Either way, You're too top-heavy. Don't nobody want, Unless he's riding like a motorcycle or something, he ain't getting on a bike. Big people don't get on bikes? They ain't getting on a bike like that. And I'm talking about him, big people, not big people like Steve Forbes or somebody. J.J. Watt. What do you mean? Just a drive-by. You make it so much worse than it really is. I just needed a big person. 
J.J. Watt, somebody that's top-heavy like that, got a big old frame, a V-shape that used to be cool in the 50s, they ain't getting on a bike. They're too damn big. Good to know. I'm interested in what you make of J.J. being a Cardinal now because my first thought went to Arizona's pass rush, which already was very good. Like, they were top five in team sacks. You got Chandler Jones, of course. You're going to be pairing him now with J.J. Uh, and you got good quarterback play in that division. It's the best division in the NFL as far as I'm concerned. Uh, with the 49ers in the Super Bowl a year ago, uh, the Rams bringing in Stafford, the Seahawks winning the division last year has the best quarterback in the division, and Kyler Murray might be a budding MVP candidate this year. And that's not talking about the defensive side of the ball, which Arizona just bolstered here. H- how do you view it? I, I think they spent money they didn't have. To be completely honest, they got a lot of guys on defense hitting free agency. And you talk about their sacks. Hassan Reddick led the team in sacks last year. He's a free agent. They yep. got to pay that guy. And uh, the other guy you brought up, he only played five games last year. Fifteen and a half million dollars. A lot of money. And thirty-one. I guess twenty-three million of it's guaranteed. But uh, JJ clearly wanted to get paid. There's this thought. Oh, he's going to take a discount. Nah. J.J. wanted to get paid, and he got paid. I don't view Arizona as the favorite in that division. I see people saying that today. Yeah, still no. You got questions at right guard, right tackle. I mean, there's so, so many holes, honestly, that you don't have a starter for right now. And I'm also not sold on Cliff Kingsbury as a coach. I'm not. I think easily he's the worst coach in that division, which isn't exactly the biggest slight out there when the other names are... McVeigh, Pete Carroll, and Kyle Shanahan. Not really the biggest insult there, but if you're facing those teams six times a year, good luck. And it's rough because his calling card is being a good-looking coach, and I still don't think he's the even the best-looking coach. Stop in it. The, Kyle Shanahan looks but I would take Kyle Shanahan over Kip I'd take McVeigh over both of them. Uh, see, McVeigh, I feel like he's going to be like, Actually, I lied. Pete Carroll. There you go. Hot. Hashtag H-A-W-T. Mm-hmm. Steamy. On the way, speaking of that Steve Forbes guy, have we learned anything about Coach Forbes as a basketball coach this year? I'll get to that. And Graham's grades are on the way. Next. Okay, wow. Let's go! Back to The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. From a personal standpoint, I feel like we know who Steve Forbes is. Always entertaining. Says interesting things. Can be blunt. There's some blue collar to him that I don't think we've seen at Wake Forest in a really long time. But from a basketball standpoint, what do we know about Coach Forbes as a coach? Because I don't think there really is a lot to extract from what we've seen this basketball season. Wake got worked Saturday in Blacksburg. They got beat by 38 points. I don't care how good Virginia Tech basketball has gotten in a short period of time under Mike Young. It is never acceptable to get beat by nearly 40 by Virginia Tech basketball. Good Lord. All the optimism we had from a month ago, it's completely gone. Robert, since the Florida State loss, which seems to have broken Wake. 
Here are the margins of defeat Wake Forest has had. The first three of these are home games. They've lost by 24, 18, 21, and on the road by 38 points. No way, man. You got to be kidding me. It's true. Wake, the first month of the conference season, the story was they might not win, but boy, they're going to be a difficult team to deal with. They're going to give you their best game. It's going to be a battle. They're going to rally. They're never down and out. See, they were going head-to-head with North Carolina, Florida State. The good news was I knew this game was over at the under-12 media. Under-12 media in the first half, I knew the game was over. Rarely ever had to flip back to it. It was on a second screen. It stayed there because Wake Forest never really even fought in this game. All the things we were excited about to watch with the Deeks seemed to have gone away. Coach Forbes, he was talking about that. This is what Coach Forbes had to say, speaking first about the Virginia Tech game from Saturday. What, is ha- what happens in February, guys, is, and I said it a little bit yesterday, is you have teams that have an air of desperation to them in February. And I've typically been on that side of the fence where you're playing for something. And so you're playing with an, uh, something to prove. You don't, you're trying to get in the NCAA tournament. You have this air of desperation. You play really hard. If I close my eyes in the game, I could hear Virginia Tech communicating. I could hear them running up and down the court. I could hear them running their offense. I didn't have to look. That is what I'm talking about. And, and we, we, have, we don't have that. And that's on me. That's on me. At least he takes ownership of it. That's his explanation for why Wake has looked like a totally different team over the last few weeks. I said this before the year, Robert. I'm going to reinforce it now. This year's a complete throwaway for Wake. I'm not saying it because it's convenient to say now. I'm saying it because I mean it. It's hard to really take anything away from this season from a negative perspective when so much worked against Wake. Only Power 6 or Power 7 program to make a coaching hire. You don't have you lose Chondi Brown, you lose Olivier Saar. You have a brutally tough opening stretch in the ACC. You lose the entire month of December. It's an impossibility to take away anything from this season about how good of a coach Steve Forbes can be. That's what I'm telling Wake fans right now. It doesn't feel right to criticize it yet. And while we're talking about Coach Forbes, his candor and how honest he can be, he understands it too. This is more of what he had to say at his teleconference this morning. Well, I think we got to be realistic, you know, and uh, we beat Longwood by seven and we beat Catawba by nine, you know, and, and, so it wasn't like we had any prerequisite going into the ACC that we were going to win the league by no means. It's pretty well said. Next year is going to be telling. It's going to be more of a conventional offseason, we think. Mike Young, he showed us what's possible for a SOCON coach, bringing one of his best SOCON players with him to the ACC at a place that lacks tradition, or at least has lacked tradition in modern decades. Uh, they. it's not fair to expect them to be a top three team in the league. That's not what I'm saying. But they could be a top 10 ACC team. I think Steve Forbes is a really good coach. This year, we just haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen it. 
because there are a lot of things holding them back that we have to bring up. Coach Forbes can't bring it up, or he won't, because he's not the guy who makes excuses. He's not into moral victories. He reinforces that, and he has to keep that public image because his players, they listen to what he says regardless of what they say to us. But um, that's that's the way I view it for Wake Basketball. All right, every week at this time, we have our Graham's Grades, where I grade things in the ACC and elsewhere from over the weekend, attaching a letter grade to it, A through F. Every week is a test in the ACC. Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, teacher, leave Time for Graham's grades. A through F, we start with the really good stuff first. A, Walker Kessler and Emmanuel Acho. Let's start with the basketball front. 20 points in 24 minutes for Kessler against Florida State. The competition they face matters because FSU is generally a really good defensive team. They're the best team in the ACC. Robert, that is exactly twice as many points as Walker has scored in a game this year and exactly twice as many minutes as Walker has played this year as well. Big game for Walker Kessler. Emmanuel Acho is an A because it was announced yesterday that Manny is going to be replacing Chris Harrison for the finale of The Bachelor as that series is now embroiled in controversy with Harrison stepping away after being insensitive publicly. Rachel is bound to win, it seems like, who had a photo that she definitely would like to have back with racial undertones, probably being generous and even putting it that way. Emmanuel Acho has the book, he has the videos that are tremendous, that are helpful, called Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man. If you haven't seen him, I strongly suggest you do so. He's a former player of Mac Browns at the University of Texas. This is a home run for ABC, as they're going to get to the bottom of things, and there's going to be a lot of care, it's going to be delicate, it's not going to be somebody trying to grandstand or be, you know, strong in the sense of overbearing. I think this is a perfect choice. I hope they're able to interview Harrison as well. That's what I hope for the finale episode that we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks. Emmanuel Acho and Walker Kessler are A's. B. NC State basketball and the movie I Care A Lot. NC State Hoops has now won four consecutive games. Here's the problem. It's way too late. It's too late. They have a great win. They beat Virginia. I know some Pac fans out there think, oh, Josh, don't count them out yet, especially heading into this wide-open ACC tournament next week. It's too late for them. It's a great run. It's going to be great to build on for next year for Kevin Keats. That's why it's a B. Four straight wins, including the game against Pitt yesterday at home where they were allowed to welcome fans at PNC Arena. Then you got I Care A Lot. Roseman Pike playing a similar character than she did in the movie Gone Girl. Oscar-worthy performance. Mike DeCourcy was right, Robert. All throughout this movie, I am hating Roseman Pike and I Care A Lot on Netflix. I strongly suggest you watch the movie. But it's a B. 
Oscar-worthy performance, but it's a B. It's a B because it's not an Oscar-worthy movie, but it is an Oscar-worthy performance. Was she the most hated villain in cinema history? I'd say no, but she's in the mix. I'd say no, but she's in the mix. I don't believe you. Watch the movie. Let me know. C. Matthew Hurt versus Louisville and Hornets After Dark. Matt Hurt had 37 points. You might be wondering, Josh, why is he a C then? Well, Duke lost the game. He probably isn't going to say he was that awesome when they lose the game. Coach K even said afterwards, there's a point where the game is tied. Louisville had a chance to go up with the free throw. They missed it. And Matt Hurd had both hands on a rebound, and he couldn't bring it down. You got to grab that rebound if you're Matt Hurd and have an opportunity to win the game in regulation. He doesn't pull it down. They lose. So even though he scored 37 points, which is great, they lose the game. He didn't grab an important rebound there, so it's a C. Hornets after dark, that's a C because, you know, while they pulled out some crazy games... Golden State at Spectrum Center. Last night against Sacramento. Phoenix. It's a C because they've almost blown all those games too. They had no business winning the game against Golden State. They got lucky because of the Golden, uh, the Draymond Green technicals. Phoenix, the officials even said after the fact that Gordon Hayward fouled Devin Booker at the end that would have tied the game. They nearly gave that game away. And last night, I thought they had lost it four or five times. So it's entertaining but I don't know if you can really put it that high because the Hornets, as often as they're executing late, they're not playing great defense and they're almost giving away the game too. D. Justin Champagny and the Golden Globe Awards. Champagny, I keep hearing, oh, this guy's the best player in the league. And even a few weeks ago, I had him as my front runner for ACC Player of the Year. But he's, even though the stats are good and he's scoring over double digits each game, 41% or fewer, or less, I should say, in the last three games. He's not getting a lot of help. I don't want to blame him too much. It's why it's not an F year. But that's a D for me. Golden Globes, did you watch any of them last night, Robert? No, I, I, I tend not to watch many award shows. Amy Poehler and Tina Fey are in different cities. You have vaccinated medical workers already at well-separated tables in front of, uh, in front of the presenters. They all were wearing masks. I don't know at that point why you need to wear the mask if you are vaccinated medical workers and you're already separated from everybody else. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then the first award, Robert, was given to Daniel Kalua for Judas and the Black Messiah. And they had him on mute as he was accepting the speech or accepting the award. So I couldn't watch after that. It was just really hard. I didn't really care as much either because I haven't had a chance to watch all these movies mainly because I haven't been allowed to go to movie theaters. So it was a D for me. F. Wake basketball, for reasons we just brought up a short while ago, and mid-broadcast interviews. See, Corey Alexander called me stupid during the broadcast Saturday, which, coming from him, that's an interesting thing to hear. But um, they do these mid-ESPN does this. I don't understand why. They're going to bring in people, and we're going to interview you and not pay attention to the game that's going on. And the one on Saturday was inexcusable. Florida State was leading by four or six points, and North Carolina went on a run as they were interviewing a draft guy, Robert. And then by the time they were done the interview, North Carolina's leading by four. And they hadn't referenced anything that happened in North Carolina rallying from behind. 
And Corey Alexander says, I'm the stupid one. That's been Graham's grave. You are listening to WSGS Winston-Salem, WCOG Greensboro, WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up Sports Hub Triad. Here's your mic check. Check, mic check. Test, check, check. You're on the drive with Josh Graham. I'll tell you something that was pretty cool last week, Robert. One of my favorite segments on sports television is Bad Beats on Scott Van Pelt's show. And last week, they included into an open they haven't changed in years, Evan Lepler, Wake Forest grad who's a good friend of the show, lives in Winston-Salem, calls ACC basketball. They featured his call of Virginia and Abilene Christian from last year, which was a brutal beat, tremendous television if you haven't watched the clip. Go back and do that, uh, which I thought was really cool. And then in the segment, they featured a game that Darren Vaught and our next guest was calling on it. I think it was the Winthrop High Point game that went over right at the buzzer, and they didn't include any, uh, any of the audio from Darren and BG, but I thought that was pretty cool and a good way to transition into BG joining us. We'll get to outprecise the guys in a bit. I actually want to start with High Point and Winthrop because High Point got the win in the 8-9 matchup of the Big South Tournament on Saturday. Now getting set for Winthrop in about 30 minutes. Given what you saw up close in person, BG, does High Point have a shot against Pat Kelsey's team? Uh, yeah, they definitely have a shot. I mean, they're you know they're a pretty severe underdog, but um, as Darren and I saw calling those two High Point and Winthrop games two weeks ago, both of those games were super close. One yeah. was a six point game, the other one was eight point. Um, Winthrop, no doubt, is like a cut above everyone else in the Big South. They're deep. They've got uh, tons of shooters. They've got a post presence in DJ Burns. Chandler Vodrin is unique and really talented as like a six, seven point guard. That's just a monster in transition, but high point has some talent on this roster. John Michael Wright is an excellent player. Um, arguably the best sort of like scoring guard scoring wing in the big South conference. And they're, they're coached by Tubby Smith. So they have a chance, but, but I do think Winthrop because, because the tournament didn't happen last year, a lot of those guys are back. It does feel like Pat Kelsey's crew has sort of has some unfinished business. But, yeah, I would not count out High Point just yet. While we're giving love to some of the local teams around here, we had Will Jones, A&T coach, on Friday talking about the Aggie Eagle Classic. Swept both those games, including Saturday, so they won their MEAC Division Championship on Saturday at Club Corbett, which was great. UNCG, for the third time in five years, Regular season champs in the SoCon under Wes Miller. We'll chat with Coach Miller on tomorrow's show to talk about that. And Mike Schrage. Want to give some love to Elon, too. They win at the buzzer at Trask Coliseum over the weekend. A terrific win for the Phoenix. Coach Schrage, a guest on tomorrow's show as well. But let's talk ACC hoops because you're our resident hoops nerd from accsports.com. We'll outprecise the guys in a bit. North Carolina wins against Florida State. I felt going into the weekend that the magic number in order to be comfortable on Selection Sunday for the Heels was three. So now that changes to two. But given tonight is a quad one game and Saturday will not be against Duke, I feel like if North Carolina wins tonight and then the wheels just come off and they lose the next two, 
Saturday and losing Greensboro. 16-11 and 11 with these two quad one wins. I think that should be enough for them to get to the finish line. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I think I would agree, too. Um, it's tight. It sort of depends on some stuff that's outside of their control. Like if this scenario plays out that you're describing, it's close. But yeah, I think I would have you know UNC just above the uh, the cut line there. Here's in my that scenario. Re- Here's my read on Duke. Then I-, I felt that game weirdly enough, given how many games Duke needs to win, I still felt it was more about Louisville than it was Duke, considering Louisville has not won a quad one game yet this year or didn't going into the weekend. They beat Duke. They win in overtime. I I am not burying Duke yet because two quad one games this week. If they win both of those, win Wednesday in Greensboro next week, and then Thursday they'd be required to play one of the top three seeds that are all ranked right now, Florida State, Virginia Tech, or Virginia, I think if they lose Friday hypothetically too, you'd be talking about a 15-11 and 11 resume for Duke with a lot of great wins down the stretch, what do you think needs to happen with Duke? Oh, I mean, the Jordan Tech game is is obviously these next two games are massive for them. Got to win them uh, both, right? Yeah, yeah, like bare minimum. Um, especially after they did not beat Louisville on Saturday. I mean, that was what? How many times did they hammer that talking point home during the <laughs> broadcast? Like, if Duke, you know, Joey Brackett says if Duke beats Louisville. Uh, you know, they're in and then there goes Carly Jones, uh, you know, weaving in and out of traffic for another layup to just snatch more of Duke's postseason basketball soul. But yeah, there's still a shot, but it all I mean, certainly it starts tomorrow night at Tech and then at at North Carolina. And like those games are those games are going to be tight like they <laughs> they are. Uh, the, the Duke, I thought had a nice win against Jordan Tech early in the season that seemed like a bit of a get right game. But the Yellow Jackets. They're loaded. This is a crew that's never been to the NCAA tournament. They're on this line too. Moses Wright, Jose Alvarado, seniors, you know. Um, so I would not be – I just think that's going to be a, a really fun game tomorrow night. But, yeah, minimum, Duke has to win these next two games against Tech and UNC. That's stating the obvious, I feel. I ran out of time today. I guess there still is some time to talk about this, but I wanted to hit on this a little bit more. Maybe we can do this later on in the week. But it seems like – Many ACC Player of the Year voters that I've talked to are leaning towards Justin Champagny because he's second in scoring right now. He's tops in rebounding in the ACC. The numbers say he's that, but it reminds me a lot of Eric Green at Virginia Tech in the in the case that he is not on a winning basketball team. Uh, Pitt's going to finish with... An under 500 record in all likelihood. Eric Green, I think, was on the last place team for Virginia Tech back in 2013. So I started thinking about it. Over the last, gosh, close to 20 years, maybe even longer than that, Eric Green's the only example of someone I I remember winning ACC Player of the Year, and he's a trivia question at this point. That would be my argument against having Chan Penny be the player of the year because there are other candidates you can throw out there who are on better teams that potentially could make the tournament that have had more impactful games. Where do you stand right now on the ACC player of the year race? It's tough. It's gone back and forth. If you talked to me six weeks ago, uh, yeah, I mean, Champagne was the leader in the clubhouse. That's where I was too. And Pitt was in a lot better spot. 
Yeah, I mean they yeah, they've lost what eight of the last nine. Yeah. Like the, they've two of their best players transferred out. I mean, we don't I'm sure you've discussed it on your show. The wheels are sort of like falling off the wagon. No Aldis, Tony, no Xavier um, Johnson, really bad. Yeah, teams. exactly. And and I like Femi Odakale, who who played really well against State um yesterday. I think he's gonna be a good player, but he's not ready. I mean, again, just they're in a bad place compared to where they were just just literally six weeks ago after the Duke win. I mean, stuff changes so quickly these days. But um, Chiambini's had a monster season. He's a lock for first-team All-ACC. I don't think he's a lock for player of the year. I think there are several other guys that have really strong cases for it. And, you know, Matt, and, and just, just to list off the names, uh, uh, the guys that I would also factor into this equation would be Matthew Hurt from Duke, who's been the best offensive player in the league. Sam Hauser, arguably the, the best or second best offensive player in the league. Jay Huff from Virginia, who by several of the advanced metrics is, you know, the sort of like the most impactful player. And then I would also include Jose Alvarado at Georgia Tech wow. and Carly Jones at Louisville. Like oh, I know see, him. See, there it is the, at the end. There it is at the end. I, I, I thought we were going to go, you were going to go this entire list. And there's two guys I'm thinking about that I'm debating between if I had a vote here. And it's Carly Jones and Kevin Aluma. Those are the two I'm looking at. And yeah, Aluma, Aluma, and maybe even Xavier, uh, like a Mir Sims is not going to win player of the year. This is like way, way, way deep dark horse. But like Amir Sims from Clemson is like, if you were a Clemson fan, you would probably try to make a case for him too, you know, right? Yeah. Um, but Aluma's been great all season. It's just been awesome to see how he's turned in from really just being like a rebounder and like a defender and a screen setter from Mike Young at Wofford to being like a truly like a featured guy that, um, you know, tech runs a lot of offense through in the, in the post, but um, I think you got to include all of those guys and we'll see sort of where things stand uh, at the end of these, at the end of this week, like there's still a couple, you know, 80 more minutes of basketball for a lot of these guys to play. Yeah. But uh, I, so right now, I don't even know who I, I think, I think if I had a vote right now, it would go for Huff. Um, but man, it's really close with, with like Kurt and, and Jones and, and Alvarado and Hauser too. Robert Walsh. It's time for you to take the wheel here. It is time for Out Precise the Guys. Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to Out Precise the Guys. The new rule we have is that BG goes first, and I have it on a piece of paper in front of me here, an answer written down that I can't change regardless of what BG says. All right. So this week I want to talk about some players that aren't getting the shine they deserve, so we're going to shine some light on them. Uh, take like Zach Levine, for instance, uh, who I didn't know his nickname was Young Hollywood. I don't know how the hell Zach Levine got that nickname. But is that a stat <laughs> reference nickname or a basketball reference nickname? It is a basketball reference nickname, as That's I was great. checking his stats today. Uh, he's been killing it. He's averaging 10 points more than his career average for points. And uh, the only way I can say it, the dude is on a tear. Uh, how many times this year has Zach Levine scored over 30 points? I did love this stat, BG. A few weeks ago, it said that Zach Levine, in terms of, I forget what it was, 40-point games in his career, he was second in Bulls history with four. <laughs> they had the graphic, second in Bulls history. We know who number one was, and it was like Jordan had over 80. 
<laughs> yeah, that speaks to MJ's dominance, the Bulls' like ineptitude post MJ, and then also like Derrick Rose, right, being like robbed some prime years too because of his body just breaking down. You know, like he he would he should have been another guy that would have featured prominently on that list, but just the the, the prime of his career was completely wiped away uh, via injuries. So to be clear of the wording again, how many times he scored over 30 points in a game this year? Correct. Okay. And uh, BG, you have to go first. So show me that piece All of right. paper. So, All right. Also, you right Josh, up. you mentioned Eric Green as a, as like a, well, like an answer to a trivia question. Yeah. Eric Green is also the answer to the trivia question of <laughs> what, like the draft, like I believe it was, yes, it was the, the, the Denver Nuggets packet like he was part of the draft night deal in 2013 that sent rudy gobert to the utah jazz no like, i quite, can't quite remember the parameters of that but so he's a trivia question or the trivia answer in, the, in those minds too um for levine i'll say i'll say 15 i've said i have seven written down here so i'm not feeling great about this zach levine has scored over 30 points 16 times oh my god Guys. He's been amazing this year. He's been amazing. <laughs> he has been amazing. Do you know how many times he has scored 10 or under this season? Zero, I bet. Uh, right? one, one time he scored 10 uh, points. That's the lowest amount of points he scored all year. So he hasn't been in single digits <laughs> at all this entire not, season. Not once. He, it is ridiculous. Uh, going to the next guy. Jordan Clarkson is the best free throw shooter in the NBA this year. How, about How many that? free throws has he missed? Yeah, oh. so Jordan, Jordan Clarkson, like the front runner for sixth man of the year right now on the best team in basketball with the Utah Jazz. Um, I want to shout out to my guy, Eric Collins, the play-by-play guy for the Hornets. Oh, yeah. Uh, assuming Jordan Clarkson hasn't missed one since the Jazz and Hornets played last week, I have two missed free throws on the season for Jordan Clarkson. I've got three. I have three. Watch. Robert's laughing, so I think I know what happened here. You already know it's two. Oh, my God. He hasn't missed one. (laughs) That's why I love this game, because I know when I see a cool stat, Geis has probably already seen it like four times over. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. That that one is total credit to Eric Collins, though, the voice of the Hornets, who had a great call last night for uh, Charlotte's win. In oh, Sacramento, yeah. but Clark, he was all over reading Clarkson's like free throw percentages when they played the Jazz listen uh, last to, week. Listen so to I tonight's game as well. The Hornets in action, probably without Gordon Hayward again. He's doubtful against Portland later on tonight. We got one more here. We're going to do it for eh, just the fun of it. Uh, Trey Young, he's having a pretty good year, averaging more points, rebounds, and assists than his career average, but he's down in one statistic turnovers. Despite being down in that statistic, he leads the league in the category. James Harden is fifth with 123 turnovers. How many does Trey Young have? It's hard. It's gonna be a lot. It is. Yeah, the, the Hawks they just they just got rid of Lloyd. They just fired Lloyd Pierce, their coach, like within the last few minutes here. Saw too. that. How so. many? How many did Harden have? And he's fifth. Harden had 123. Okay. All right. I got my answer written down here, so you're free to go, BJ. I'll say uh, 150 turnovers for Trey Young. I went ridiculous. I got 237. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm just going for it, man. Eight turnovers for a game. Betray <laughs> Young this year. There it is. I don't know, man. I'm just being honest. I have that written yeah. down there. I could have easily <laughs> tried to do something less embarrassing based on BG's answer, but that's what I wrote down. Yeah. Uh, Trey Young had 139 in first place. All right. But no, hey. If he had to, maybe by the end of the year he could get two thirty seven. If he if he those are rookie numbers right here. Yeah, you got to get exactly. those numbers up, Trey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great stuff. Ah, BG, are you going to Greensboro? Am I going to see you next week or no? No, I will not be. I will be. Uh, I will watch every second of every game, but I, I will be doing it from uh, the comfort of my my home office. So it's sad. First first year not going to the ACC tournament since twenty thirteen for me. I'm. I'm sad, but I hope everyone uh, has fun and stays safe there. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk to you next Monday. appreciate the time. Read his stuff. ACCsports.com. Follow him on Twitter at BGuys underscore Bird. Good to hear from you, buddy. Yeah, take it easy, guys. All right. Let me update this poll very quickly here. I asked this question because I think it is a legitimate question. Who will start week one for the Carolina Panthers? Teddy, Deshaun Watson, a rookie quarterback, or an other category? Who would even be in the other category? It's not a rookie if it's not Teddy, if it's not Deshaun. Who's the other? Dak Prescott? Like, this got over a fifth of the vote. 21% people saying, yeah, the other is going to be starting week one. Who would that even be? I'm just asking. Tommy Stevens. Tommy Stevens. He's going to be starting week one. Will Greer. Let's get after it. The P.J. Walker experience isn't done yet. Got a win last year. Just got a ride. The XFL legend from the Houston Roughnecks. 36% of the poll leading the way says Teddy Bridgewater will be the quarterback next year starting week one for the Carolina Panthers.